0: Everybody asked me how Thanksgiving was. It's a different holiday for us, different way of celebrating Thanksgiving. But um, I'll let her uh, speak on that if she uh, wants to. But she is tired. Uh, She's feeling um, the um, medicine of which uh, the doctors have prescribed to her going through her body right now. So uh, we're just going to pray for a great grace um, and a great ability to communicate this morning the word of God. Father, we thank you uh, for this servant. We thank you, Lord, uh, for who she is in this church, what she means to us and, Lord, this morning we open our hearts and our ears to the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, it's good to see you all this morning. I'm actually going to move this forward because the closer I can be to you, oh, this could be a problem. <laughs> I know. I, I like to be close. And I just need a water, too. Because my mouth is extremely dry. Um, yeah, we had an interesting week, but um, I actually don't want to sidetrack from what I'm going to speak on today. Um, but health challenges, they're lovely, and they just happen to be how our family gets hit. <laughs> um, anyhow, with that said, today we're actually wrapping up, um, and I will say that um, for those of you that don't know, aside from health challenges, ours wasn't just Thanksgiving. We kind of have some ongoing things going on with um, my, my little female body here. Uh, <laughs> but in addition to that, most of you know that my son actually had four years of ongoing uh, chronic sickness. And so the topic that I'm going to speak on today is actually very close to my heart. Um, and it's not something that I'm unfamiliar with. Um, but what we're doing is we're wrapping up the series today, uh, we've been talking about a healthy heart, what it means to have a healthy heart, and we've had some dynamic messages from Daryl and from John, and so today I'm going to do a little bit of like an overview, but I'm going to say this to you today, if you apply the scriptural principles that we talk about today, they will change your life. They will change your relationships. And if you're someone that's hungry for revival, this is actually how you see revival in your life. And so these are some very practical things. But I'm going to start just because we're talking about the issue of the heart, I'm going to share a story. I guess it was, I don't even know, I think it was 15 years ago. Um, I was woken up, I was 20 I, I was something, um, it was before I planted the house of prayer. I was probably 21, 22. I was sleeping, at that time I was living at my parents' house, I was sleeping in my bedroom, and I got awoken at 4 o'clock in the morning to my father standing in the doorway. And he was standing in the doorway, and he said, Get up and pray for me, I think I'm having a heart attack. And he's, you have to understand, another day I'll explain to you, my father and I have a very unique relationship. Um, he definitely was not the perfect father. He was a very harsh um, verbally strong (laughs) man. Um, But part of my coming to Jesus at an early age was embracing who he was without expecting him to be something different. Um, And in that, I've seen my father transformed, largely because of my embracing him and loving him unconditionally. Um, So he's a very different man today. And so at that time when he woke me up, um, we have this kind of special bond between us. So I got up and I prayed for him. And I said, Dad, just as a precaution, we should call the ambulance. So we called an ambulance. He was taken into the local hospital. I'll I'll spare you all the details, but after two or three days of being in the hospital and evaluations and tests and all of these things, um, and me kind of being a medical advocate for him, they sent me on my way with a list of prescriptions for him, and I said, "So what? What is his diagnosis like? What's our?" And they looked at me and they said, "He has angina." And I thought, "Huh? Like, <laughs> I'm like angina? Like, I don't know anybody with angina. Like, what? What is that?" So uh, me and who I am, I get on the interwebs and I'm like angina. Like, you know, <laughs> like what's angina? And I'm like researching all of his medicines and what they're for and what they do and you know blood thinners and all this stuff. But I came to the conclusion it wasn't a diagnosis. Angina is a symptom. Like, angina is basically saying, your heart's struggling to pump. Well, why? <laughs> why is my heart struggling to pump? So what happened was, is I went to my dad, I just said, dad, I, angina is not really a diagnosis. Like, we don't know what's wrong with you. They never said he had a heart attack. They never, whatever machines they hooked him up, all of these evaluations, they pretty much just said, like, his heart was struggling, but they're not sure Why? So I basically uh, called the hospital, and I just said, I think we need further testing. Like, this is not conclusive, and I think we have a problem here that we need to uncover. My dad went to sleep that night, slept fine. He woke up um, the next morning. I think it was 2 a.m., and I actually, he didn't wake me up that time. I woke up to the sound of sirens and ambulances, and it, it was, you know, he had only been home for two nights. He got rushed to the hospital. They pretty much said to him, your heart, I don't, know, I don't even know the terminology. I think they use the word, you're, like, you're going into cardiac arrest. They wanted to give him a pill, and, and they said to them, I guess he had to sign something, or something was going on where they actually said to him, you'll have a 70% chance of bleeding out. Like, and so my dad's a gambling man. He knew that those kind of odds were not good odds. He was like, I don't want a 70% chance of bleeding out. So we actually said, do I have any other option? They said, you may survive a Met flight to Boston. And so he's like, I'm taking the Met Flight. <laughs> that was like, kind of like, I'll take those odds over 70% bleeding out. So he was Met Flighted. I'm at the hospital there. Literally, by the time I drove the 40 minutes, I mean, literally, I left the hospital, drove to Mass General. By the time I, amazing what doctors can do. Amazing. My father was met, flighted in Mass General. He was brought into emergency surgery. The heart surgeon did the angioplasty thing, went up into his heart. He basically found that that was his third heart attack. Crazy that prior to that, those had gone undete- undetected. He was in ICU, and he came out to us, and he said, this was your father's third heart attack. How many of you are aware of? I said, none. He's never been diagnosed. He has something called coronary artery disease, So he goes on to explain that basically the damage, because every time you have a heart attack, that part of your heart is basically dead, like it's not functioning. And so he goes on to explain if he lives through the next 24 hours, he has this issue of these blockages in the heart, but his heart is so weak. If he ever has another one, he's not surviving that. So this was more than 15 years ago. Thank God he's never had another heart attack. (laughs) Um, I'll be honest with you. When when I walked down the aisle and he walked me down, I cried like going, it's a miracle that my dad's here. When my son was born, I literally never take for granted the fact that my father is alive. Because during those 24 hours, we basically prepared that he wasn't going to live through it. But then also in that... Um, the risk of, so he goes for major, major heart monitoring all the time to see what's going on in there. He has stents, all kinds of things going on. So I say all that to say, When it comes to your physical heart and heart disease, basically they say that 50% of people that have heart issues or things like coronary artery disease and things like this, 50% of those people, it's something genetically. There's something in their genes that no matter how healthy you are, as far as exercise and diet and all of those things, genetically you are prone to heart disease. But then the other 50% of people that get heart disease and issues like heart attacks, it's actually something environmental. It's basically life choices that they make and how they're living their life and choosing not to make healthy choices. Interestingly enough, when you're talking about issues of the heart, I have this weird gene mutation that pretty much, they they suspect I got it from my father, that pretty much someone with my gene mutation is very, very, very prone and very likely to have heart disease. So when you're aware of these kind of things, you don't walk around making unwise choices. You walk around doing things preventatively to make healthy choices to sustain health. And so that disease does not progress in your life. Now, can I say this to you? We can understand this on a natural level as far as our physical bodies. But most of us don't understand this on a spiritual level, on an emotional level, how it deals with and relates to the issues of our heart. Most of us walk around severely neglecting the state of our heart. And even in the place of the natural, when 50% of us, it could be genetic that cause heart disease, and the other 50%, it's issues of environment. Can I say that that applies to us also spiritually? There's some of us here that there's literally hereditary, the Bible calls it, iniquitous patterns that are from generation to generation. So there's some of you that Your propensity is toward bitterness. It's like a family thing that you inherit this, I'm going to be bitter and angry and frustrated with everyone that comes my way. (laughs) But then there's others of us. It's not necessarily something in our family line. It's environmental things. We may have encountered things that have actually exaggerated and caused things like bitterness to be a very real wrestle in our heart. And I say that because there's two points here today that you need to understand, is that for some of us, there truly are iniquitous patterns in our family that we have to be aware of. And I'll be honest with you, the easy way to identify it is you can, today you can be like, I'm not an angry person. But then like you're around your you see certain behaviors of like your mother or your father or something, and you look at them and you think, oh, they're so angry. (laughs) Like you're kind of like cringing and you're like, oh, just such a frustrated individual. You know, it's easy to see it in other people and really difficult to see it in yourself. It's terrifying, actually, <laughs> how clearly we can pick up on critical patterns in other people, but when you yourself are being critical, you can't even hear it because you're so familiar with it. So today we want to talk about the health of the heart. Proverbs 4.23, I'm going to actually read it to you in a couple of different translations. Oh, is it because I'm too loud? No, it's, it's kind of on the fritz. Do you Good. want me to be, no. do you want me to hold it down or something? No. No. <laughs> it was just okay. Yeah. My voice is naturally loud. That was actually part of the friction between my, me and my father as a child. He does not like high volume. He's the most steady Eddie you've ever seen in your life. Like nothing ever. Like gets him going, gets him excited, even gets him anxious. It's, it's kind of like, well, we're not dead. <laughs> which is a wonderful quality to have in a father. But I was, like, always on, like, you know, 180 going 1,000 miles an hour, and my voice was always thundering through the house, and so my father was forever saying, where'd you learn how to whisper in a sawmill? And I remember thinking, like, when I was young, I remember thinking, like, what is your problem? Like, you need a happy pill. But you know what's funny? My son is, like, me and Daryl on steroids. (laughs) So now, every once in a while, because he never stops talking, and he has such high volume, and he's, I'm, I literally will look at Daryl and go, "Now, I don't think my parents were grumpy. I don't think they were. <laughs> I'm like, I, I get it. I totally get it. <laughs> mm. So I'm going to read this to you in a couple of different translations, just because it's very effective. Um, so Proverbs 4.23 in the New International Version, says above all else. I actually want you to repeat the words, above all else. Okay, let's just break down English language. When you say above all else, that means above your financial pursuits, that means above your academic pursuits, that means above your dating life, That means above your professional pursuits. That means above your commitment to the gym and physical health. That means above your retirement plan and your 401k. That means above the pursuit of every other thing in your life. What does it say? Guard your heart. (laughs) Guard your heart. I don't want to see a show of hands, but how many of you this morning above every other thing in your life, you are guarding your heart? That's numero uno, when you wake up in the morning, you're like, I'm waking up and I'm guarding my heart. <laughs> I'm going to prioritize my life and my day and my relationships around the guarding of my heart. Most of us don't. Most of us severely neglect our heart. Here, here's a good indication <laughs> right here. We're taught from a very young age how to do Outward behavior modification, right? We're taught, how many times can you remember your mother asking, did you brush your teeth? You should brush your teeth, right? I'm not I'm not knocking your mom for doing that. Did you do your homework? Did you, you know, our moms they train us growing up, all of the things that we need to do. Did you change your underwear? Did you make your bed? do do do? do, do, do. How many times did your mother daily look at you and say, How is your heart? You know what it is? It's because it's not something that's giving precedence and a priority. You know, I, I will say I was raised with a mother like that. I was raised with a mother that would go after my heart. Do you want to know? You guys all know we have strange sleeping patterns in the, yo, I mean the temple household. Like literally our kid still likes to sleep with us. But part of the reason he still does is every single night I lay down with that little boy and I ask him, I say, how's your heart today? Did anything happen today that hurt your heart? So anything you're disappointed about that we should talk to Jesus about, we're doing an assessment of the heart, wondering what is going on inside of that heart. Be aware of the things that are happening to your heart. Because you know what happens is, when you neglect your heart, something happens one day that you don't rightly process, that you don't bring before the Lord, that you don't release in forgiveness, and then you wake up the next day completely forgetting about it, but guess what, you're carrying that thing around as a wound in you. And you've neglected to rightly deal with it, and it comes out in other places. Proverbs 4.23, so the New International Version says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. The New Living Translation says, Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. The entirety of the course of your life is determined by your heart. Uh, The English Standard Version says keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. The New American Standard Bible says watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. The King James Bible says keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of your life. So we find that the Bible places this great importance and we're gonna look at a couple of passages of scripture regarding it. So today there's many aspects of our heart health that we could look at. There is a multitude of things with our heart, heart that we could look at. In Proverbs fourteen thirty, 30, um, we see that a healthy heart is free from envy. A healthy heart is free from comparison. Proverbs fifteen thirteen, a merry heart does good like medicine. A, ha- a healthy heart is a happy heart. In the whole book of Job, we see that a healthy heart can process pain and disappointment rightly. That's the importance of having a healthy heart is that we process pain and disappointment rightly. Ephesians 4.15, 4, a healthy heart can navigate conflict. A healthy heart can forgive. In uh, Matthew 7.2, 7, 2, the, to the same measure that we judge others, you also will be judged. A, a healthy heart can give grace to other people. A healthy heart is interdependent and not codependent. A healthy heart is free from anxiety. A healthy heart is free from expectations and demands upon other people. And I want you to turn to Matthew 15, 1. And I want us to understand today that ultimately the heart is the sphere of where all relationships happen within our lives. And the issues of our heart will always take a toll upon our relationships, in Matthew chapter 15, um, starting in verse 1. Then the scribes and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. He answered, so this is Jesus answering, and said to them, Why do you transgress the commandments of God because of your traditions? For, for God commanded saying, Honor your father and your mother. And he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. Verse 5, but you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift from God. Then Then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandments of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you saying, these people draw near to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips. But their heart is far from me. See, this is back to the point of we're very good at outward behavior modification. But God is not looking for us to draw near to us, draw near to him with our lips or our outward acts of service. He's after the issues of the heart. Verse 9: And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And this is where Jesus diagnoses the heart in verse 10. When he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear and understand. Not what goes into your mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth defiles a man. Then his disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And he answered and he said, every plant which my heavenly father has planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. Verse 15, then Peter answered and said to him, explain this parable to us. And so Jesus is going to break it down. (laughs) Are you also still without understanding? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth Come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, theft, fault witness, false witness, and blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. So do we see what Jesus is doing here? He's, I mean, we could spend all day on this passage of Scripture But basically what he's doing to the Pharisees is he's taking their focus and their attention off of outward works and legalistic legalistic things. And he's pointing it back to the issue of the heart. And he's saying, it's, it's not the outward things, it's the issues of the heart that defiles a man. You know what I love about the way Jesus brings this back to the Pharisees? Because you know what, the Pharisees were so busy criticizing other people. That ultimately they were missing it themselves. Basically what Jesus is saying is don't be so concerned about what everybody else is doing. Don't be so concerned about your assessment of every other individual. You should be have a full-time jo- job of being concerned about tending to the issues of your own heart. Can I just say this to you today? Your life and your relationships will radically change... Do you make it a full-time job to assess the issues of your own heart instead of everybody else that's around you? Can I tell you how many people I've sat with, whether it's married couples or just people with conflict between them, all those things, and you're trying to like mediate? This This one individual that was basically discussing separation and ultimately they ended up divorcing, but as she was complaining to me about her husband and all the bad stuff he does, and just to be very clear, I was fully aware of the situation, There were definitely some things that I would not be thrilled with in my marriage. (laughs) But can I say that to you? That even with knowing those situations, I could definitely see the good and I could definitely see a man that was trying with all of his heart to do what was right. He was not wanting to be stuck in his life and his wrong choices. And so with this specific woman, I actually began to say to her, you know what? Can you just start to focus on what he does well? Get your eyes off of every other thing. And does he mow the lawn? That's amazing. Like, I know some of you are like, mow the lawn. No, 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 you have to understand, 90% of it is an issue of perception. 90% of it is what you actually have your eyes upon. And when you begin to look at other people through a critical lens, all you see is the negative. But instead of choosing to look at the negative, if you begin and intentionally decide to meditate upon the good in that individual, your heart will shift and change. And all of a sudden you have grace and you have mercy and you understand, I am a sinner in need of grace and so I'm going to extend it lavishly. You know, for every married couple that's here today, and many of you are not married, I'm going to say to you, this is how you win at marriage right here. Because no matter how amazing your spouse is. So when you're a pastor, and it's not just a pastor, because it's like in our homeschool world, in our community world, like in every world, you kind of have the privilege of like hearing the the behind-the-scenes scoop on everybody's stuff. And you know what's amazing is you can sit with one woman And she may have tons of financial security, great house, all of these things, but you know what? She's angsting for a husband that will actually be home and be present because she's raising her children alone. And then you have the next woman that has her husband there completely invested, involved in helping in the house and all of these things, and she's angsting for a bigger house and vacation property, all of a sudden you realize that it's not circumstantial. It's not about the circumstances that you're surrounded with. It's about the issue of your heart. And this is why Jesus gives us this command when he's speaking about the Pharisees and he's saying, it's not about the outward things that defile a man. It's the issues of the heart that defile a man. And here's the Pharisees that think they're so righteous and so educated and such, and such right standing and Jesus rebukes them because basically their eyes were upon other people in judging them instead of assessing the condition of their own heart. And this is where he says that it's what comes out of the mouth of a man that defiles him. Can I say something to you? Listen to the words that come out of your mouth. Are you judgmental? Are you critical? Are you complaining? Are you condescending? What is it that you're speaking over your life and your circumstance? What is it that you're speaking over your family? Because ultimately it's our words that reveal our heart. It's our words that reveal our pride. It's our words that reveal that we look down upon other people. So what we're gonna actually go through um, very briefly. How are we on time? Okay. what we're actually going to go through is I had read a book. Um, so this is an older book. It was written in like 2004. Um, this gentleman, Andy Stanley, I guess this year came out with some very awful statements about the New Testament, things that we do not agree with. But he wrote great content in 2004. He wrote this book. It's called the uh, The Enemies of the Heart. And I, I will say, if you'll read the book, it'll completely change your life. Um, and so what, I'm going to use just a, a portion of that because the way he identifies the four enemies of the heart, they really get to the root issue of what plagues our hearts. Um, if you will turn to Luke 18:9. Most of you may be <laughs> familiar with this passage of scripture. Luke 18:9 <clears throat> Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and, <clears throat> and despised others. Verse 10 Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus within himself: "God, I thank you that I am not like this other, like other men—extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as the tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess." And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, "God, have mercy on me." A sinner. Do we see the same thing here? The, the Pharisee is actually comparing himself to other people. And that's where he's assessing his righteousness. Where you find this tax collector, he's not there assessing himself in comparison to others. He's just asking for mercy for himself. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And we're actually going to find this in um, the, I'm going to break these down super quickly for you. Number one, one, and I'm going to say this. Most of these, when I say them, you're like, no, nah, that's not me. But if you actually sit and take a few moments, I'm going to ask you actually to take these four points this week and actually pray about them. Actually have time and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you. Number 1 is guilt. <clears throat> this is the the four main things that plague the human heart. Number 1 is guilt, and basically guilt is having done something that we perceive as wrong. So, most of us, we either feel guilty before God because we feel as though somehow we've sinned against him or we've done something wrong or we carry guilt towards other people. That could be any amount of things that we feel like we have not dealt justly, and so there's a place of guilt. With all of these four things, there's a a component of debt-to-debtor relationship. And when you are carrying guilt as an individual, ultimately you're living from the posture of, I owe you. Whether that's God or whether that's other people, it's from the posture of, I owe you, that you feel like you owe something. And how many of you guys know the remedy for guilt is confession, that he has given us the gift of confession, that we can confess our sin before him, but we also can confess our faults one to another. How many of you guys know something? If guilt is plaguing you over an issue in your life, what you really should do is confess it to God and potentially confess it to the person that you've sinned against. And guess what? That guilt will lose its hold. It will no longer be a stronghold that will cripple you and bind you and keep you indebted. So with guilt, it's an "I you" mentality, whether that's other people or whether that's God. The second is anger. Anger is basically those that struggle with something was taken from me or you did not get what you want. Ultimately, an angry person is a hurt person. Anytime you see anger, the question then becomes, number one, they've been hurt, but they either feel like something has been taken from them, or they did not get what they want. And I'm going to say this, I'm not saying in any way in trying to diminish the issue of anger. There are some very, very real and painful things that happen in our life that can cause us to feel angry. But can I say something to you? It is the power of the gospel that those losses or even what was legitimately taken does not have authority and control over our life, but that from a place of releasing forgiveness, we are able to walk in freedom and liberty. See, here's the defining factor. You can have one person that has a story of trauma, has a story of neglect and abuse and all of these things, but yet they're walking in freedom and liberty because they refuse to be defined by that circumstance. And then you have another individual who has sometimes even lesser circumstances, and they are an angry, miserable person because they're using those things as an excuse and an opportunity to hold on to anger. But instead, the remedy for us, when we we are angry and we can identify that we are struggling with anger, the remedy for us is forgiveness. That we would forgive those that have sinned against us. That's where you find liberty. That's where you find freedom, is in the place of forgiveness. And I want to encourage you, like I said, sit before the Lord this week, because some of you here are like, I'm not an angry person, I'm not a screamer. Anger has nothing to do with the volume of your voice. (laughs) Anger has nothing to do, even with the way that you choose. Do you know that some of the most angry people can choose to fume inwardly? Fume inwardly. And all you see is them (laughs) seething with anger. It's a disease. And you know what the greater question is? And I've sat in many meetings with people that are angry, and my question is, I can't necessarily say it to them is there's something that they want that they're not getting. What is that thing? We, we'll use this code in our, this is very practical, let's be honest. Okay, it's Christmas. For those of you that have families, you're going to decorate for Christmas. <laughs> I actually called my brother the other day. He has a unique situation happening. But I called him, and I was like, how'd the tree extravaganza go?" I was like, any incidences? You know, because all of those things, between the lights, everybody has an expectation of what that looks like. Right? And it's all good until somebody has a different opinion. I want the tree over there. Now it looks better over there. You know, you're doing okay if one person could just yield and go, okay, whatever. As soon as you have two conflicting opinions... You have a little anger in the room because one person's going to yield, but the whole time they're kind of like, it looks totally dumb over there. My idea would have been so much better. You do not have a good eye, my friend. Can I tell you, that sounds ridiculous with the Christmas tree, but all of us have situations in our life that we have an expectation of how we want it to go. And when it does not go our way, we are angry. For some of you, anger may not look like screaming and swearing and yelling. It looks like withdrawing and withholding and isolating. But the issue of anger is toxic. You can find it all throughout the word of God as for addressing this issue of anger. But guess what? You do not have to be a slave. You can come to a place, and this is where maturity is, is that even when you don't get your way, You can release forgiveness and continue to walk with others in relationship. It's the power of the gospel right there. Greed. Everybody in the room's like, I'm not greedy, I'm a tither. (laughs) Do you know the issue of greed has nothing to do with us being able to give Christmas gifts or give our 10%? Do you know the issue of greed has everything to do like with Feeling as though we have to take care of ourselves. And we have to store for ourselves. You want to know ultimately? The question of greed comes down to do we trust God to care for us? And some of us are kind of like, yeah, I trust God. But some of us don't trust God to care for us the way we would like him to. Your provision doesn't quite look the way I like it. Your provision isn't quite as extravagant as I would have planned. Can I just say this to you? We are not generous givers unless it's actually cost us something. So, you know, I can write out my $25 check to my cute little niece for her birthday. I can write out a $25 check for my auntie's retirement party. There's no amount of I'm going to have to now go without something this week. But guess what? When I'm going to write it out for $50, <laughs> i am actually like, Ooh, it's a, that's a little more costly. Like, that's a piano lesson, and uh, you know, you start gauging that. But can I say that to you? That is the place of generosity, of saying, I'm actually giving to you, and there's a place of sacrifice where it's something I'm going without because I'm giving of myself rather than I have some excess so I can throw it your way and never feel it. How many of us, though, when it comes to giving to an individual, if it's going to cost us something, we reconsider that greatly? That's greed. Not because, hear me, I know every person in here is like, I'm a wise financial planner. See, that's, this is the problem, is in our culture and in our society, we breed an environment of greed. How many of you guys are familiar? I'm going to give you this passage of Scripture. You can look it up on your own. In Luke 12, 15... This is actually where the gentleman had a barn and his harvest was so plentiful that basically because his harvest was so plentiful, he had to build a bigger barn to store all of his harvest. See, that's greed right there of like, oh, I have so much more, so now I get to store it all for myself. So he builds a bigger barn. And what happens after he builds the bigger barn? The word of the Lord comes to him and says, your your life will be required of you this night. Most of us here are like, well, that was his. No, actually, it wasn't. God wanted him to have a heart that was free. Luke 12, 15. Watch out and be on your guard against all kinds of greed. That's Luke 12, 15. And that's where the the story of the gentleman that builds the bigger barn. Luke 12, 16 through 17 is the story, and it closes with, so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Hey, hey, can I ask you this morning? Are we as concerned with being rich toward God as we are with accumulating our possessions? Are we as concerned with being rich towards God as we are with building our bigger barns to store all that we've been given? Or do we live in a place that we are free of our possessions that we can give freely? And that is the place that we are rich towards God. And the last is jealousy. And most of us in the room are like, I am not a jealous person. Let me just say this to you. According to the word of God, if you have relational conflict, it's because you have jealousy. <clears throat> if you'll turn to James 4 1. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Here's your root right here, sister, brother. I don't care if it's your marriage, I don't care if it's your roommate, I don't care if it's your mother or your father or your brother or your sister, I don't care if it's someone that you deeply love inside, but yet you despise their success. You despise that you were not given the portion that they were given. You despise that your life is not as easy. You despise that uh, academia did not come as easily. You despise that you did not receive the inheritance. You look in judgment and assessment of somehow they got it better than I did. You envy their position. You envy, uh, this happens with husbands and wives all the time. You'd never call it jealousy. But it's the fact that a mom is stuck at home with the kid 24-7, the kid that we And then we're like, like I can just kind of come and go. He can, he can come, he can go. He gets to go. He gets in the car. He goes. I want to get in the car and go. I won't go. <laughs> Makes you angry. Last night, my my cousin was over with his wife and uh, their kids and everything, and the kid was losing his brain, the two year olds, and it was like the funniest thing. Because as a parent, when Abram would like freak out, I'd be more like, "Oh, like so concerned." She's like, "Get him away!" Like <laughs> she's like saying to her husband, "Take the child!" Like you know, she's like, "You do something." But this is where conflict comes from. As we envy the freedom and the liberty of other people, we envy the the posture and the position. How many of you guys know that even when it comes to our spouses, people compare the way that another marriage or the way that another person expresses love, and we, oh, I wish that, uh." I don't think we get it. I'll read it to you. Where do what wars and fights come from, from among you? Do they come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members? You lust and you do not have. <clears throat> you murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and you war, yet you do not attain. <clears throat> you, uh, sorry. you fight and you war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasures. It's an issue of I want, and I need, and I am entitled to. Can I tell you, every relational issue that you have, you need to begin to ask the question, what is it that I want that I'm not getting? How is it that I'm comparing or I am jealous of this circumstance? So with jealousy, it's God owes me, and the remedy for this is celebrate others' successes. So when I say God owes me, some of you are kind of like, no, would not be the other person? Oh, no, 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 because at the end of the day, if you have a sister-in-law and she's a size two, as much as you're sitting there going, nice size two dress you got there, sister. (laughs) And you're like, inwardly, you love the girl, you'll babysit the girl's children, you'll bake her anything, you'll do anything for her, but you're like, size two. Guess what? You know, she didn't give you the size 10. (laughs) You know, God had a say. God had a say in the nose he gave you. God has had a say in the family he put you in. Your issue is not with other people. Your issue is you're frustrated that God did not deal you a better deal. Your issue is with God. And can I say this to you? This is where relational conflict comes with. I'm going to break it down for you right here. You don't have a conflict with other people. You have a conflict with yourself and you have a conflict with God and it's leaking out onto other people. So stop making other people your focus, your target practice, and start asking the question, what is going on inside of here? Where am I wrestling with guilt? Where am I wrestling with jealousy? Where am I wrestling with greed? Asking and taking an assessment of our heart. So with guilt, it's the I owe you. That we feel as though we either owe God or someone else. And the remedy is confession. With anger, it's you owe me. (laughs) And the remedy is forgiveness. We release forgiveness. With greed, it's I owe me. Meaning I owe it to myself. I deserve it. I deserve better. It's an entitlement mentality, and we have a generation that is plagued by it. Can I just tell you, the entitlement mentality is in in hostility to the gospel of Jesus Christ, where nothing is owed to us, where we were deserving of death, and yet God in his mercy spared us. Can I say you have enough to rejoice all the days of your life? If you truly understand that you were the debtor, that God owes you nothing. So jealousy, God owes me. And the, re- the remedy is to ce- celebrate others' successes. <clears throat> so I want you to write down, confess, forgive, give, give generously, and celebrate, celebrate others you know that a healthy heart will live in this rhythm and this will be a rhythm of their life and that if you're not living in, a, in this rhythm, that if you begin to practice and take these actions, it will cause health to be produced in your life. I'm going to close out with um, 1 Thessalonians 5.18. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God concerning you. I've shared this before, but there's a story. If you guys have not seen it, I'm like totally dating myself here. When I was little, my favorite movie was The Hiding Place, by, and it's about Corey ten Boone. Uh, you got Anybody here familiar with Cory Denpoon? A couple of us. The older crowd. Uh, <laughs> but one of my favorite stories, and this really is what speaks to the whole debtor and, um, debt, debtor and debt mentality that we have, is basically these two, this Christian family lived in Holland. And when the Nazis came to occupy Holland, the, this Christian family decided to hide Jewish people and to keep them safe. And so what had happened, though, is that when they raided their home, they not only found the Jewish people, but they found that this Christian family was harboring these Christian people, and so they were sent into a concentration camp. So as Christians, because they chose to advocate for the Jewish people, they ended up in a concentration camp. So it's two sisters. It's Cory Tenboon and Betsy. They're sisters. And so they're kind of at the beginning of their journey. They had been in one location of a concentration camp, and they were transferred but one of the most provoking stories in their book that they tell is that basically when they made it to a new barrack, she actually, it was, um, it was Betsy that woke up in the middle of the night because she was being bit by fleas. And so as she was being bit, she actually awoke and she cried out. She thought, Corey thought that Betsy was talking to her. She wasn't. She was talking to God. She said, how can we live in these conditions? How can we live in this place? She's asking God. And then she very quickly said to her sister Corey, "She said God has already given us the answer." She opened up her Bible. She had her Bible there. She said, "We read it this morning in First Thessalonians. It's 1 Thessalonians five eighteen. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God concerning you." So here's Betsy saying, "We need to give thanks. That's how we live in this circumstance." So Corey then says, "Give thanks." She said. What are we going to give thanks for? And the beauty of this in a concentration camp, Betsy responded and she said, first, we give thanks that we're together. We get to be together in these barracks. And she said, and secondly, we give thanks. Mind you, they're packed in there. They're squeezed in there like sardines. She said, secondly, we give thanks because there's so many more people, because they were in such a bad situation. It, It was like a decline for them. That one sister was like, this is awful. The other sister says, there's so many more people packed in here that we have more people that we have the opportunity of sharing Christ with during the night when we're here. So she begins to recount all of these things to be thankful for in the midst of the concentration camp. And then she goes on to say, she goes, and we thank him for the fleas. And this is where Corey says to her, thank him for the fleas. I can't thank him for the fleas. She said, thank him in all things. Thank him, Corey. Thank him for the fleas. So they thank him. They're like, and God, thank you for the fleas. They thank God for the fleas. Can I say something to you? It's a few days that go by, and they're spending the evenings, and they're, they have their little Bible. That was one of the things they were thankful for. Let's thank him that our Bible made it with us, that they didn't take it in that last confiscation. So they have their Bible in the night season as they're teaching people about Jesus and they come to realize the reason they can have church all night long and share Jesus with all of their barrack mates is because the guards will not come in there because it's infested with fleas. The fleas made it a safe place for them. That they were not harassed all night long. The fleas made it a place of safety for the gospel to be preached. And they actually testified of the presence of God in the barracks. Touching women even as they were going to their death. Can I ask you a question? Who of us have a mentality to see our circumstance through thanking him in everything? Even in the midst of hardship. You know, most of us sat around our Thanksgiving table and thankful for my house, thankful for my car, thankful for my kid. Can I ask you, when do we come to the place that even the trials of your heart, your heart and your life, you begin to thank him and say, God, I thank you that this is an occasion that I am going to know you more fully. Can I say something to you? Get your eyes off of your circumstance. Get your eyes off of other people. Get your eyes off of your spouse. Get your eyes off of your pastor. Get your eyes off of your parents. Because at the end of the day, it's a deficit within you. And the deficit within you is that you have to come to a place of reconciling yourself before God reconciling the hand that he has dealt you and understanding that as you rejoice and give him thanks, you are going to see the beauty that he is orchestrating in your life. So the rhythm of a healthy heart that we need to practice, Hilltop Church, is number one, confession. Number two, that we forgive. Number three, that we give generously. Number four, that we celebrate And number five is that we give thanks in all things. Entitlement guts thanksgiving. We're not thankful when we think we're owed something. Thanksgiving realizes we deserve none of our blessings. And we owe him more thanks than we could ever possibly express. Why don't you stand to your feet? I want to pray for you. Father, I thank you this morning for every person under the sound of my voice. And God, as, even as we've gathered here, Lord, on Sundays to hear about what it is to have a healthy heart, God, we say that we don't want to be people that have mental assent to ideas and theology, but God, we want to be people with living reality. And so, God, we ask, Lord, that I ask specifically for those under the sound of my voice, God, I ask that even these four things, Lord, I ask that those that are in bondage to guilt God, that they are living from a place of feeling like they owe you or they owe others, that they are laboring under the heavy burden of guilt. Lord, I ask that you would shine the light of your truth upon those areas, Lord, of bondage. Lord, I ask for those, Lord, that are living in postures of anger and resentment towards others. God, I ask, Lord, for every heart attitude that says you owe me and that there is someone that they are holding in a tight grip of revenge, and someone that they are holding in a tight grip of anger. Lord, God, I ask, Father, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would expose those places and that they would be led to greater places of forgiveness and liberty. Father, I ask for those under the sound of my voice, God, that are in bondage to greed. God, that they feel as though they cannot trust you to provide for them. And God, even if you were to provide, Lord, that it would not be in the manner or with the quality that they would desire. Lord, I ask, Lord, that they could come to greater places of trust and surrender. Lord, that we would uh, relinquish the attitude that I owe me, that I deserve the very best. And Lord, we ask, Lord, that we truly would live lives of giving generously to other people. And Lord, we ask, God, that this stronghold of jealousy, God, that every place that we feel as though you owe us, Lord, that somehow we did not receive our, our due portion Lord, that somehow you did, you did not treat us, Lord, the same as other people. Lord, I ask, God, this morning that the power of comparison would be oh, oh, uh, broken. Lord, that we would not hold you a debtor, and we would hold no man a debtor. But, God, that we would look to you first and foremost. God, that we would look to you for the meeting of our needs. God, that we would honestly dialogue with you over the issues of our hearts. And Lord, we ask, God, that we truly would celebrate the successes of others. Lord, I ask, Lord, that you would deliver us as a people, God, from an entitlement mentality. God, even as we, Lord, even as we talked about Corey Tenboon, God, so many places, Lord, I can see that our young American mindset would be God should have protected me because I was doing a good work. God should have kept me from the concentration camp. God, should have, so many of us stand with the should ofs of what you should do. But God, I ask, Lord, that you would truly lead us to greater places of worship, of trusting you, God, that you are God and we are man. And Lord, that it would cause us not only to worship you, but God, to see the beauty of your wisdom, the beauty of your plan, as we embrace the life that you've given us, without despising, without judging you as God but trusting you and worshiping you with the very details of our life. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.